0: All right. Um, Revelation chapter 11 is uh, where we're going to be this evening. Um, A lot of things going on in the world around us, our nation, and changes that are rapidly taking place. Um, We're just having a conversation as we began uh, out in the entryway about um, the money system and uh, the fact that uh, there's talk right now of of overhauling uh, the American economy, you got big problems with you know things that are going on. So, hey Mark, um, I don't know if we're going to want that door open. Uh, make sure the nursery door is closed, also. So you know, it's just a lot of change, and all of it, you know, definitely uh, is the book of Revelation and uh, what we see uh, going on here. you know, Certainly um, things that are going on right now, uh, there are, um, uh, the snow showed up just on time. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, so uh, there's a number of things going on that, you know, I'm hearing people say that's the mark of the beast, or this is the Antichrist, or, you know, that's the one world order and i think i'm not trying to be a skeptic I'm, I'm trying to be a real trying to be a realist and you know maybe that's arrogance i i don't i don't know um what what i would encourage us with is the fact that you know a lot of these things we can't know they're 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 in process they're in development and when we make wild speculations then it nullifies the answers that we have for people uh, you know the, the book of revelation is way worth our time to study and know and understand uh, you know the big thing that i get from the book of revelation is that sense of what Jesus is saying about you can know the season? Everybody wants to know the hour, the day, the minute—you know, the, the exact understanding. Uh, these are things that God will reveal in time, and what is going on right now. Um, some of these things may be, in fact, the final elements that we're going to see the world experience uh, but it's it's much more fruitful to help people learn uh, the seasons as I said so so that they can be prepared and not caught think about you know my first experience I don't know about yours there were cult leaders before Jim Jones but um, you know I was very young uh, what was that 79 seems like but I was very young and remember seeing uh the the tragedy on the news and and the horrifying thought as a child of like it can come to that like like people can follow someone literally into their death while well, it was going on in Jesus day you know they, they they're grabbing Paul and thinking that he was an insurrection leader uh you know they they're they're you know looking at different scenarios and thinking that they had you know been um different leaders and cults and organizations that were going on at the time we need to be men and women who follow the lord with an accuracy that is biblical um i i just when coronavirus broke out uh, there was a good brother who sent us all a sermon that he did. And uh, in it, he was talking about the vaccine. And uh, he's making these great, bold claims about how the vaccine is the mark. It's the mark of the beast. And um, his ministry is a good ministry. And he is a good biblical teacher. But he's making these wild claims about the vaccine being the mark of the beast, creates fear, um, you know, creates a distrust uh, in the medical community and the government and, and a lot of things that we shouldn't necessarily be fearful of. We, we can use our discernment. We can use caution in approaching these things. You know, I'm still very wary of the vaccine. Why? Because it's so untested. We've still got to see, you know, which version. And, and the same thing has gone on historically with every single vaccine that has been developed. Uh, you know, a cautionary approach to say, oh, well, you know, medically, if we can wait and see that thing develop and and watch you know side effects and results um you know then maybe we can make an informed decision you know as far as it being the mark of the beast uh that's a monetary system right not a medical system and uh, you know all of my good friends that are into all that then immediately jump on well it's going to be coupled with the monetary system well presently it's not and the mark of the beast, which we'll study here in a couple chapters, is a sworn allegiance to a one world leader. You know, no one's going to accidentally get anything and then turn around and go, What? That was the mark of the beast? It's going to be a conscious decision to swear allegiance in joining yourself to a one world leader so you know the sort of extremism that emerges we want to be very cautious uh, you know i don't mind ever looking radical i mean you, you you probably know me well enough to where i'll you know stick my hand in the fan and figure out what's going on later you know i i'm i'm a you know what was that old thing of, of you know ready fire aim you know that sort of approach um uh, to life you know, I, I've taken my fair shot at, at those things, but I so value the message of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and our ministry to the world. I don't want to diminish the effectiveness by jumping on to some unnecessarily radical bandwagon. So I just would caution us all uh, to approach the truth of god's word and in particular the revelation of jesus christ with a balance uh, with a real thoughtfulness that will allow us to be effective ministers so did you do your homework i encourage us all to do our homework and read ahead into chapter 11 uh for uh, this week and uh you know a number of things here we we should pray again and uh, then approach uh, this chapter of revelation father i thank you again uh, for the accuracy of your word and what it is predicted here I pray that we would be men and women who waited upon you in it That that we would long to see your kingdom come and your will be done in our hearts Our minds our lives and our conduct. I pray in Jesus name. Amen uh, Revelation chapter 11 verse 1 then I was given a reed. Like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, "Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. Um, for those of you that are you know Bible students and have been at this a while, or if you are you know beginning the process of being serious about this, I would remind you or encourage you, depending on where you're at, To uh, look at the book of Daniel again Uh, for many reasons, but you'll remember that moment where the hand appeared and started writing on the wall. And uh, what did it say? Medi, medi, tauta, the measured, measured, and found lacking. I'm given a rod here to measure, okay? An overarching understanding of this is how much God is in control. Okay? Not trying to steer us in a direction that's unnatural to the passage. Right? How about this? The temple doesn't exist right now. Okay? This is implying that the temple is going to exist. That would mean that God is so profoundly in control right now that he's going to change and orchestrate circumstances and move governments and peoples and and religions to a degree that the temple will exist. So, So, you know, imagine somebody comes to you and unrolls a blueprint and hands you giant tape reel and says, hey, come with me. And they take you outside this building and they start telling you how many paces to walk and stop right there and drive a pin in the ground right you get your bundle of wooden stakes and yeah and he's t- and you're like finally like what are we doing and he's like oh we're gonna build right a skyscraper right here you know route three in trenton well, a skyscraper right yeah imagine what would have to happen in this community you know this close to the ocean all of the things that are involved this this little tiny t- there's going to be a, there's an airport right over there you're telling me that they're going to build a skyscraper right here yeah, like and and and. you know you're not even saying it in such a way that it's like a bean dream hopeful expectation you're you're saying it like no this is the real deal we're we're surveying you're you're helping me measure out that's the level, actually, on a much more grand scale, right? I mean, just the conflict between the Muslim world and the Jewish world that is inside Jerusalem right now. For this to be laid out, of hey, take this measuring rod, do me a favor, let's mark some points here. This is remarkable that that this statement is made now. Now, right? Rewind to the fact. That Israel did not exist for a long period of time. Thousands of years. And this was written in the scripture. There were people inside Christianity that mocked the concept. Yet God has reestablished the nation of Israel. And this is going to be accomplished. This will be built. The angel stood saying, rise, measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. How do you measure people? Right, uh, the same way the Lord weighs out the leaders of nations and says, You're lacking, you're a little light <laughs> you you're the The balance is tipped against you. It's the idea it's a It's a much bigger view that the Lord is putting out here. The temple in Ezekiel is often compared right here, so it's best understood as the temple of the millennial earth, the temple of Ezekiel. So if you're looking for how do these things you know, coincide with one another, uh, you know, the, the, the temple in Ezekiel best understood as the temple of the millennial earth, and the temple of Revelation 11 seems to be before the temple of Ezekiel. And there are a couple of things we'll examine in regard to that. So, um, you know, great debates begin at that point of is this temple going to make it all the way through and be refurbished for the millennial temple? Is the measurements any different during the 1000 year reign of Jesus Christ uh, than this one? So some things to examine uh, as we move along here. Uh, There are similarities uh, between these temples in Ezekiel. Uh, they also measure that extensively, but there they include the outer courts. Okay, You can take the time to review Ezekiel chapter 40 verses 17 and 19 and, and get the very specific measurements of the outer courts that are there. Now there's a lot of discussion about the fact that the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Mosque, Uh, You know, for a long time, people insisted that that is where the outer courts would have uh, lain and that uh, the temple would be north of that. And that's why they leave off those outer courts. That's possible. Uh, I've heard good discussions uh, amongst rabbis uh, when we were in Israel and Christian leaders that uh, there are better understandings and better... I'm not saying they're better. I'm saying they were discussing them as better understandings and better surveys that put the temple grounds in locations that wouldn't interfere with the existence of the Dome of the Rock at all. So um, depending on who you listen to, there are varying opinions. Uh, you know, we're, We'll get through this. As we examine, but um, suffice it to say here, this is the uh, temple that precedes the temple, which is recorded in Ezekiel, which will be the temple during the millennial reign. Now, listen, if you're thinking, hopefully, right, spiritually thinking ahead of, wait a second, temple equals sacrifice, and Jesus is the sacrifice, and the high priest so what need of temple and what need of sacrifice do we have? Okay, keep in mind, you've got a couple different brackets of sacrifice that are recorded in the Old Testament. There's sin sacrifices and forgiveness, and there are fellowship sacrifices and peace sacrifices that are made to be in fellowship with the Lord. The Lord wants his people to eat and feast and to celebrate and be in unity with him. So, you know, I I am always excited for Resurrection Sunday and Thanksgiving and Christmas because at my house that usually means all of the family and all of the food you can possibly handle. Everybody together celebrating those times and seasons of the year. That's a God-given desire. God wants his children, wants his family together. He instituted the feasts and the holy days. We use that term uh, without even realizing sometimes holiday is derived from holy day, uh, where the people would come together and celebrate. Those are God's institutions. Um, I'll say one more time. God is really into barbecue. Right? Not just trying to be humorous about that. Kill the fatted calf, light the fire, get the grate hot, cook the meat, eat together. God is very much into it. Even seasoning, he's, he's describing all throughout those celebrations and how to make things savory. So God has purposes in our future for celebration and feasting and the temple that the people would be together. In the meantime, I want to take this measurement and the idea of how uh, we are measured as people. Um, It was C.S. Lewis that he worded it differently. I'll, I'll say it the way he did. He said, congregations should never be measured in numbers. They should be measured by their gross combined weight. Okay, And a whole bunch of people get offended with that. He's talking about uh, the sincerity. The depth, the weight of your faith is what he's talking about. Um, the measurements that are being taken here and that idea of weighed, weighed, found lacking. We don't want to be found lacking. We want the scales to tip in favor of our Lord. We want our lives to be measured in such a way that it it weighs out Jesus Christ. That, that our behavior and our lives tip towards him and show favor towards him and, and lend payment to him. That's how our lives should be. With that in mind, a couple of references, Ephesians chapter 2 Beginning at verse 19, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being Fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. The Lord is much more interested in measuring us. And where the spirit dwells in us. And how much room do we give to the spirit. Leonard Ravenhill in his book Why Revival Tarries. Uh, makes the observation that Christianity often makes the comment about how much of the Holy Spirit do you have and and it's a selfish prideful thing that the church has done for a long time right think about what Paul is saying to the church in first Corinthians about how they get together and everybody's speaking in tongues and prophesying and preaching and Nobody can get anything out of the sermon. Why? Because everybody's filled with pride about how spiritual they are, how much of the Holy Spirit they have. And they're, what, rubbing one another's noses isn't it? How absurd is that, right? The apostles are arguing about, I'm the greatest in the kingdom. I'm the guy. I'll wait. Oh, you wait and see. I'll be, you know, vice messiah. I'm the one who's really, you know, they've got all of this nonsense going on. Leonard Ravenhill says, the question is not how much of the Holy Spirit you have, but how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? How much are you surrendered? How much has the Holy Spirit taken over your life, removed other things, displaced all other things? It's not not how much do you have, it's how much does he have? How much are you surrendered? We are to be the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Consider what Peter says, First Peter chapter two verse five. You also, as living stones, right? This is Rocky himself, right? So Jesus named him Pebbles. You know, little stone is what he named Simon. That's what the term Peter means. If he, if he was naming him Giant Rock, which some imply, you know, upon this rock I build my church, his name would have been Petros. You know, Giant stone mass instead little tiny rock peter pebble stone you know something annoying you ever have a stone bruise on your heel right just land no how about a lego bruise you know talking about middle of the night stomp on that thing right that'll wake you right up this is the idea of what jesus was saying about peter peter needs to empty himself and be filled more with the holy spirit and become expansive as far as being a stone in the temple of God. We we each need to become more and more inclusive of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. You are living stones, are a building, Secondly, this is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. You're a building. Um, I've got it out of context. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, We are to be measured and fit together and working for our our Lord. Verse 2, that statement we've touched on already, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given... To the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. Now, the treading underfoot. There are some who want to paint this picture as you know, the Gentiles are going. Uh, you know that they they try to make this the church, the the Gentile church. You had the Jewish temple, you had the Jewish body of believers, and. Now they're trying to say, okay, this is, in you know, once the church is finished, then, then the Lord will begin to establish a different temple. They've got all kinds of strange ways of interpreting this and looking at this. This given over to the Gentiles is literally that the temple is going to be constructed, but the outer courts are not going to be, assembled or designated or built in the way that they have always been part of the temple in the past. And the trodden under the foot of the Gentiles is uh, the idea of an utter disrespect. So so they're treading this uh, area under their feet is the idea of like wiping your feet on the doormat, having a disregard and a disgrace for it. So, the temple's going to be built, but there's going to be a resentful attitude towards at least the surroundings. Okay, so think about everything that would have to change right now for the temple to be built. Now, incorporate what is said, particularly by Daniel in chapter 9 and then in chapter 11, about how the agreement is going to be made with antichrist that they can have their temple and perform their sacrifices but at the three and a half year mark he's going to come and he's going to demand to be worshipped as uh, god himself uh, we're going to see the woman who rides the beast a symbol of world religion and she riding the beast that would be the political system so she's given entrance and power and authority but then what happens the beast and her follower and its followers turn on her and attack her so the betrayal of the jews and the temple and the betrayal of the world religion any any resemblance any residual of christianity that may be incorporated in that the devil the world the antichrist is going to hate that they're, they're going to have a murderous attitude towards it. So this idea of being trampled underfoot uh, for the uh, 42 months is that given over to them for a period of time. Uh, verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, a few things about these uh, witnesses that are described here, and we're going to get some more description of them. The first of which is that their ministry is prophecy. Uh, You know, a lot of really weird interpretations of the Bible in general, of prophecy more so, of the book of Revelation, have emerged all throughout history. Um, i reading things today about uh, individuals that think that uh, these two, two witnesses will be women. Well, then you go back and look for clear lines of reference, and you don't discover that unless you go to the Greek language. And every one of the pronouns that is used is masculine in form without question. So some things we do know their ministry is prophecy and they are men and they have an absolute authority to perform their ministry Uh, a number of people uh, jump in here and try to say okay well this is actually not two individuals this is a representation of the church number one and then the Holy Spirit, number two. So these two witnesses will be on earth. Again, ignoring the language completely. There are two individuals here. These are people and their ministry is prophecy and they are men. And they cannot be interfered with. They, they have a tremendous power in their uh, ministry. They are clothed in sackcloth, Uh, literally. uh, Sackcloth (coughs) has had many different forms throughout time. Usually it's a roughly woven fabric. So um, sometimes it's wool, other times it's made literally from flax. Uh, Other times it's just made from a variety of things that are woven together, and its main purpose is to be uncomfortable. Um, you think about John the Baptist being clothed in camel's hair. Um, if you've, I've, I've had the opportunity to be in zoos, and you know, petting zoos with camels. I'm not sure what the thought was there because. Camels are real, when we say oily, they're sticky. Okay, camels are sticky and they're stinky. I'm not sure why you would want to incorporate a camel into a petting zoo. Um, you know, llama and alpaca are weird enough. Now include camel, I suppose, if you, you want to get close and see this thing. Point is, John the Baptist wore camel's hair. Camel's hair smells bad. It's oily. Uh, even after it's been, we'll say, harvested, uh, it is uncomfortable. whole point is to make the flesh uncomfortable. Whatever sackcloth is being worn here, burlap bag, if you want to you know, get a simple understanding of it, right? Get your burlap bag, cut a hole in the top, a couple holes in the side, put that down over your head, your arms out the side, that's going to chafe. It's going to be really uncomfortable. And that's the sense of what's here. The greater picture is these men don't find any comfort in the things of the world. They, they know what their mission is. They are not your stereotypical Western world preacher who has, you know, furlough to go home from the mission field and, An insurance package for his family and, uh, you know, leased vehicles to travel around to churches and airlines that give him first class seats. These guys are old school prophets. They want, want to talk about hellfire and brimstone. We'll see some of their power here in just a moment and their message to the world that is around them. So uh, here these witnesses prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, right? So they got their three-and-a-half-year mark, and they are preaching for the world to hear. These two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Just jumped into verse 4, a Picturesque description, and we'll talk about Zechariah here in just a moment in his vision of the two olive trees and how they were plumbed directly into the lamp that was in his vision and how they burned perpetually. So, here we're reaching back to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, and then also 4, verse 14. The two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. We talked this morning uh, as we were looking at resurrection. And uh, Jesus saying we're going to go uh, minister to Lazarus in Judea, the re- They discover that he's going to raise him from the dead, but there's a threat against Jesus' life. And Thomas is the one who says, well, if they're going to kill Jesus and he's going to go and allow them to kill him, then we might as well go with him and die. The idea is Jesus is saying it's appointed unto man once to die. And Hebrews tells us, 927, it's appointed unto man wants to die and these prophets preach like you can't kill us until it's the appointed time to kill us the fire that proceeds from their mouths devours their enemies and if anyone wants to harm them he must be killed in this manner not really sure why it occurs in this manner other than the lord has said so which um, you know, gives further indication that God is in control. As wild as everything has become, he hasn't gotten down off his throne and relinquished any authority to anyone else. He He is the God of, as we just read, The you know, the lamp stands before the God of the earth. Anyone who tries to harm them, they're going to die in this manner. These have power to shut heaven. So that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Which is an interesting statement. We see all of the prophets in the past. Think of Daniel being asked to come and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he, in humility, says, I don't have the ability to interpret dreams. I know God personally, who does have the ability to interpret dreams, and we can inquire of him, and he will inform us. The way this is written out seems that these men, interestingly enough, for the first time in human history, have this power at their command, right? Elijah inquires of the Lord and asks for fire to fall. He's already given the assurance that it's coming, but he asked the Lord for it. These men seem to command that if anyone messes with them, then they cause the fire to fall. They cause the heavens to stop offering their rain. They can speak and it will be so. So there's a great deal of authority and power given to them. Authority to turn the water to blood. A lot of speculation. People want to say that without question, this is Elijah and this is Moses. Quite possibly, this is Elijah and this is Moses. Here are two thoughts that are probably the best argument for that. We don't know where Moses' body is. And we, don't, we do know there was a big dispute Between Michael the archangel and Lucifer himself, in the book of Jude, it is described. Uh, We also know that Elijah was taken up into heaven. People uh, will often talk about the whirlwind, the chariot of fire that carried him away. Again, we don't know where he is. Is he in the presence of the Lord? Probably Uh, We see Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus about his coming death. Probably your best guesstimation is Moses and Elijah. Fire from the sky, turning the water to blood, possibly. Um, But you've also got to hear the scriptures telling us that before the Messiah comes, Elijah would arrive. Well, Messiah came. And now people are asking Jesus, what about Elijah? You're here. You're the Christ. Jesus says, if you can accept it, John the Baptist was Elijah. Right? Elijah's servant was Elisha. If you think I like to confuse people in my sermons, the Holy Spirit saw fit that Elijah's servant would be Elisha. Enough to where you got to slow down and pronounce things very carefully so people will understand who you're talking about. Elisha watches Elijah ascend into heaven and he has asked Elijah for twice the amount of power or the spirit that was upon Elijah to be on himself, Elisha. And we see that immediately after Elijah has ascended, Elisha takes Elijah's mantle and strikes the river, and it parts in the same way. If you count the number of miraculous occasions that occur during Elisha's ministry, we see twice as many miraculous occasions as you did during Elijah's, an indication that he received a double portion the same spirit now jump forward to john the baptist jesus says if you could accept it john the baptist was elijah what miracles were attributed to him zero no miracles but he introduced the messiah to the world said of jesus that is the lamb of god that takes away the sins of the world now move forward to us right because jesus said John the Baptist is the greatest prophet that's ever been born to the human race. And then he said, anyone that's in the kingdom who is least is greater than John the Baptist. So for everybody that's sitting around going, it's definitely Moses and it's definitely Elijah. Or it's definitely Elijah and we think maybe it's Jeremiah. Or it could be, or it might be, guess what? We don't know. There will be two men that come. And they will have ministries, I say, empowered by the Holy Spirit that are very reflective of many of the prophets that we have seen. I don't think any of us would be surprised to turn around and see, oh, in fact, it was Moses and Elijah. But to sit here now and argue and divide the church and speculate and try to insist we know which one it's going to be all that is is the work of our enemy creating division in the church. So these are going to come, they're going to have all of this power dis- you know at their disposal, the power over the waters at the end of verse 6 to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. The witnesses have a unique continual empowering of the Holy Spirit as shown in Zechariah's olive the trees and the olive lamp picture, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, and then chapter 4, verse 14, where the priests have to come in and pour oil into the lamp uh, continuously. Trim the wicks and change the wicks and clean the lanterns and fill them with oil. It's a non stop process. Zechariah has the vision Of the piping. Leading right into the olive tree. The olive oil. Is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. That idea. That the power. The fuel. The ignition. Of the Holy Spirit. Is going to have an unbroken. Unfettered supply. Flowing into particularly. These two witnesses. It's not going to be like. Those we've seen in the past. right? powerful. Elijah is, you know, defiant of everyone until he gets a letter from a girl and then he runs away and hides and wishes for death in a cave, right? You know. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is the only one who is willing to stand up and say, you are the Christ, until a little girl asks him if he's a follower of Jesus, in which case he pronounces death curses upon himself and denies knowing Jesus. These are going to stand up in the face of the world and prophesy and call down fire and bring plagues upon the earth with no interference of their ministry until, verse 7, when they finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit, remember Abaddon, otherwise known as Apollyon, uh, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, that's who we're referring to. Probably Satan himself is given authority. Verse 7 continues by saying, We'll make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And if your heart sinks right there, and you're thinking, Wow, you know, the tables have really turned. Incredible prophets of God capable of killing their enemies with the spoken word, fire that falls from heaven. That's just incredible. Now they're dead. Well, the story turns around before we're done here, but verse 8 continues. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Oh, wait, is this Jerusalem? Or is it? Sodom, or is it egypt yes whatever city will turn itself over to the authority and rule of satan that he can perform all of his wickedness against god and against his people will fit all of these descriptions will be known as sodom egypt babylon Babylon the mystery. Verse nine, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days, and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Now if you're thinking like that's just an exaggeration. That that's disgusting and inhumane and Three and a half days of, you know, celebrating dead bodies, that's just gross. Who would do that? Well, we've seen it in recent history, haven't we? As they've chopped and mutilated and dragged and burned and hung bodies out for public display for days at a time. As horrendous as it is to consider every passing day tells us very likely. Yeah, I believe it wholeheartedly. Why? Because the scripture says so. The scripture says this is going to take place. They did not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, making merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, listen. Listen. People get upset when I talk about Islam directly. It's fear. You start talking about Muslims and Islam, and everybody wants you to be politically correct and really careful. You can't be xenophobic. You can't be anti-Islamic. you got all these different terminologies that they want to throw out there. I will never forget, during the second Gulf War, seeing the photographs of military contractors' bodies, which had been horribly mutilated, hanging from bridges. We were all shocked at those images that we saw. For me, I saw the first images and I immediately did some research because there's a child in the foreground with a gleeful expression on his face. Pointing over his shoulder at the body that's hanging from the bridge. And I wanted to know how old is that child. That would take joy. I Listen. I don't care if it's a sworn enemy. Right? I mean, most of us, you think about um, Nazi Germany. Right? Some German... SS, officer, killed, hanging from a bridge. The child in the photograph was nine. You know any nine-year-olds that would see a human body hanging from a bridge and have a celebratory look on their face? Probably any nine-year-old you know would be filled with horror, not want to look at it, would be asking incessant questions questions, would probably have nightmares for days, would probably be traumatized for the rest of their life for the memory of that experience. That's a nation that has raised its children with the mindset of murder and torture that not only is it normal and acceptable, it is a joyful celebratory occasion. You've probably taken your children to someone's funeral and had to do a great deal of explaining as they process, forgive me for saying it this way, but a beautifully displayed body in a respectful ceremony. That was very disturbing for them to see that that way. There, There is a murderous, satanic mentality amongst the religion of islam that generates this type of attitude and listen i'm not saying that islam is the ultimate evil i'm saying that is an expression of what we're going to see happening here on this earth they are going to celebrate around these bodies There is going to be an atmosphere of festivity in the presence of dead, tortured bodies. You read it and you think, that's just weird. That's strange. That couldn't be. We're already on the precursory cusp of this. This mentality is already in the world's culture. It's already demonstrated itself to us right we in the western world the reason we don't have that is because we are a nation that was founded on christianity that has a respect and a reverence that comes even for our enemies right we are the ones that put in place the rules of engagement and the rules of war that present that prevent this type of behavior well, you know, during World War II, the rage and the hatred that was in place for the Germans and the Japanese. We forced our soldiers to not do things like this because of our faith, because of Christianity. We're going to get to a place where the world celebrates this and has no fear of God in the process. They rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another. Imagine just wanted to send you a present over the dead, mutilated body that's outside your doorstep. Crazy. Because of the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. I would ask you to make note right there of Psalm 52, verses 1 through 3. Where the scriptures say, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully you love evil more than good lying rather than speaking righteousness say law right? say law literally means stop right there and think about that for a while there is a world that loves evil we're surrounded by it. It loves evil. And it's going to grow and become more and more insidious with every passing year. Eleven, Verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. I would well think so. They aren't hideous, zombified Creatures, they are gloriously resurrected back to life. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Two portions in uh, verse 9, and then again here in uh, verse 11, presume worldwide communication right the whole world sees them at a time where there was no worldwide communication this was written presuming that the world would be able to see these things all at once imagine in john's day the idea that everyone would be capable of witnessing the same thing in the same day. There, There were occasions that occurred on this planet where it took hundreds of years for the rest of the planet to become aware that those occasions had taken place. You know, traveling word of mouth, you know, you get to certain island locations and don't even think to share with them some catastrophe, some volcano that went off you know, in your location two decades ago. You've long since forgotten about the tragedy. While you're there doing business on whatever, they're oblivious to what you've experienced. We live in an era and a time where everyone sees everything at the same time. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. They sent it in Uh, to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them in the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell earthquake seven thousand people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the god of heaven there is some uh, repentance in this process so not symbolic Individuals, this doesn't represent the church and the Holy Spirit, these are distinct persons that are being spoken of. Now, who they are, not terribly important. How do I know that? Because the scripture doesn't tell us, right? If it was significant enough, then the scripture would have told us who they are. Verse 14 the second woe is past, behold, the third woe is still coming or coming quickly now some people want to look at these moments where the scripture says things are going to happen quickly and they want to argue and say look it's taken thousands of years the idea of quickly would more accurately mean abruptly you're going to see these things build up build up and then they burst upon the scene. you know they don't sort of ease into happening <laughs> they're erupting on our screens and in our lives and around and people are going, oh, this is what that's all about. I I apologize for saying it that way. Again, we will be watching from the presence of the Lord. Verse 15, the seventh trumpet the uh, kingdom proclaimed, the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Uh, Still got some mileage to take place before the Lord brings that finality out. But the proclamation is made that God controls and God is in charge. Remember that the next time that your life has gone completely kaflooey, and you open up the scripture and read some promise there, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication, make your request be made known to God. The peace of Jesus Christ, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then you look back at your life, and it's a flaming ball of chaos. Those things seem to be contradictory. You can trust the word of God. You can trust that the Lord here has claimed the earth as his own. Then the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying... We give you thanks, O Lord God, Almighty, the one who is the one who was and the one who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, and they should be judged, they should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name shall small and great, and should destroy those. Who destroy the earth? Uh, this great proclamation of glory and this worship that goes on. Again, the chaos that's ensuing here in the moment. You can almost think like, well, how in, how in the world is there worship going on? Why why are they making this great? Because the time has come. You know, even though there is still going to be a great deal more of catastrophe. The proclamation has been made, right? The hour everyone's been waiting for has just been signaled. You know, the onset of these things, the rise of Antichrist, the one-world power, the one-world religion, the one-world money system we're going to see unfold here in the coming chapters, great, bring it on. The proclamation has been made that God is the king of all things. The time for these things to unfold is now present verse 19 then the temple of god was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple don't mistake that to be the ark that was here on earth and there were lightnings noises thunderings and earthquake and great hail the reason i inject that is because the ark of the covenant here on earth we are told is symbolic of his throne in heaven What was the covering of the Ark of the Covenant called? The mercy seat, right? His judgment is founded in mercy. You know, so often been relayed, God doesn't really send anyone to hell. Right? Again, I think it was C.S. Lewis, I could be wrong in this quote. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, there are only two types of people in all of existence. Those that have said to God, not my will be done, but your will be done. Like Jesus Christ. And then those to whom God has said, not my will be done, but your will be done. Those that end up in hell have done so, Despite all of the great efforts of God to save them. So when we see this judgment throne, the throne of God, understand that it's not as the tyrannical rule of dictators we've seen here on earth who wield their power without mercy. The very seat of his throne is labeled as the mercy seat. He wants to forgive. He wants to cleanse people of their sin. The Ark of His covenant, is seen in His temple, it's called the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. It's the earthly representation of God's throne to emphasize God's faithfulness, reminiscent of God's manifest presence on Mount Sinai, right? The thunderings, the lightnings the voices, the fear amongst the people. Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. So the judgments come, the the entrance to heaven has been opened, and God is now seen upon his throne at the close of Revelation chapter 11. Quite an amazing moment in uh, the revealing of God and his plan. So we'll pick up at chapter 12 next week.